Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Italy's attempt to form a government scared the markets this week. Italy's president turned down the government proposed by the Five Star Movement and the League. The nomination of Eurosceptic Paolo Savana as economy minister prompted the move. The markets were worried that a new election would give Eurosceptics an upper hand. With me is Luigi Zangales. He's professor of entrepreneurship and finance at the University of Chicago. He has his own podcast now, Capitalizant, is his new podcast. Great to see you, Luigi. My pleasure to be here. Um, it seems like Italy's taking a deep breath now, and everybody is going to swap out and make a deal here. How do you understand what's going on? First of all, uh, you have to put uh, this election in context. It, it used to be the case that Italy was so far off uh, the normal path. Now we are kind of normal. That we had Brexit, we had Trump, uh, we had uh, Le Pen coming close to win a French election. We had the, the, the Germans spend six months to form a government. So I think that uh, this is not too too strange particularly because uh, the, the 4th of March, there was a, a really um, changing election. The fact that uh, two parties that are in different ways anti-establishment together got a majority of the votes. I think that's a very powerful signal that Italian voters want something different. Is it, it, it is the same as something that's happening in lots of countries, though. Um, I was noting the economist Branko Milanovic said that um, basically political parties can win elections if what they propose is unrealistic. And there's like 50 percent of the people who are not happy with the way things are going. There's only 15 or 20 percent that are doing well right now. And there's opportunity in almost every country for an insurgent vote. Look, uh, politi uh, politicians being unrealistic is not a new thing. I think it's a long uh, tradition. I think what is different uh, is that uh, there is economic distress. And uh, in America, uh, more than half of the population did not see a real increase in standard of living for the last 30 or 40 years. And uh, in Italy, the entire country on average did not see any increase in standard of living for the last 20 years. So, uh, and uh, we had a very severe recession, 30% of the business fail. Uh, Italy is in a very, very strong distress situation. So I think that people should see that uh, it's actually healthy that we're dealing with this in a democratic fashion rather than having some extremist takeover or tendency or more autocratic tendencies. In, in this sense, I think I differentiate uh, uh, greatly between the two uh, parties who won the election because the Feistan movement is a very interesting post-ideological movement and uh, is a bit like uh, uh, John Stewart were to start a party and uh, uh, team together with some uh, guy from the Silicon Valley and create this party that is uh, post-modern and uh, and they bring together a lot of things that people like from uh, environment to universal basic income to some concern about immigration, not racist, but some concern about immigration. The other party, the, the Liga, is much more like a Le Pen kind of party. So it's more uh, a traditional right-wing uh, uh, anti-immigration populist reaction. Can you explain what happened with the League? Because I remember the Northern League, as it was called back in the day, as a regional secessionist party. It was pretty small. It was cantankerous for sure. But it was not this thing that we see today, which seems really more geared toward mean-spiritedness and, you know, an extreme right. I think he's all due to the current leader, Salvini, is a very shrewd 
and cynical politician. He saw a opening and uh, really went uh, deep into this uh, opportunity. And uh, he's exploiting every opportunity to uh, make a name for himself. I think uh, in that is is uh, very capable. Is the problem here that if there are snap elections in Italy, his party, everybody believes, is the one that would benefit from this? Yes, but, you know, in a democracy, whoever gets more votes uh, rule. I think that that's, uh, that's the rules of democracy. So I think that the, the biggest concern is uh, uh, can we have a government that address some of the concerns that Italians have today? And some of the concerns have to do with the economic condition. Some are con- concerned with the way we've been abandoned by Europe as far as immigration is concerned. Because Americans don't understand that uh, uh, the rules in, in Europe are such that that uh, um, if all the immigrants from Mexico were to had to come through New Mexico and New Mexico had to deal with them uh, only out of its state budget and could not relocate in any other place uh, outside of New Mexico. I think that that would be kind of crazy. But that's, those are the doubling rules for, for Europe. Uh, the immigrants uh, should be taking care of the country that we see them first. And, and you know what? Uh, Italy is much closer to Africa than uh, Denmark. So where do they go? Do they do Denmark first? No, they go to Italy first. But then they they cannot uh, relocate them, and we have to deal entirely out of our budget, which is a broken budget. So I think that uh, that seems a bit crazy to me. I wanted to get your opinion of what happened when Italy's president uh, did turn down this proposed government. Was that a... Some people looked at it and said, well, that was anti-democratic. He shouldn't have done it. But he drew the line at um, this Eurosceptic uh, economic minister. So um, there is a constitutional issue that I'm not uh, very qualified to discuss. Uh, in, it is true that the president of uh, the republic has the right to uh, appoint the ministers. But the way it has been interpreted so far is that if you don't qualify on some uh, moral ground, so in the past, what the president did is refuse to appoint uh, Minister of Justice, the personal lawyer of Berlusconi. This has nothing to do with the fact he wasn't qualified or he had a different ideology. It's simply that was not good. Or uh, in another case, refused to appoint Minister of Justice, somebody that was indicted. So that seems like uh, a reasonable thing to do. Now, whether he had the power or not constitutionally, I think that that was, uh, in my view, <clears throat> the wrong move, both economically and politically. Economically, because actually spooked the market more than the, uh, that what he wanted to avoid. Because if you go out of the way to kind of uh, uh, block somebody, uh, you get a sense that this is imminent, that this is a se- serious problem. It was not imminent, and in my view, was not on the agenda. So that, that was like a, the wrong move. Politically, first of all, we had... Uh, ministers that were neo-fascist. So in Italy, you can be neo-fascist and be appointed uh, minister, but you cannot be Eurosceptic. That's crazy. And this is the biggest gift that the president could give to the Eurosceptics. Um, Paolo Savona, he had a plan to take Italy out of the Euro in in the course of a weekend. He had some kind of, he had met with people and they had discussed a plan to pull Italy out of the Euro. Uh, is that worth being scared about? Look, it was called Plan B for a reason. It was not Plan A. Uh, I think that a good uh, economic minister 
must have a contingency plan. Is is as if the Ministry of Defense, uh, the Secretary of Defense in the United States, did not have a plan uh, for a nuclear war with North Korea. Not that they want to go to a nuclear war, but if there is an attack, what do you do? You know, yesterday a very famous uh, uh, German economist, um, Sin, said that uh, uh, we should block. Uh, the so-called target two. Now, t- target two balance. The target two is basically uh, uh, are the capital movements within Europe that are offset by some loans between central banks. And uh, uh, blocking target two balance is tantamount to block any movement of capital from Italy to Germany. So the Germans are planning this. Don't you want to have a contingency plan in case the German plans this? Uh, if, if they move the block the capital movement, we might not be able to finance our basic necessity. What do you do? You, you continue staying there if they want to kick you out? I'm talking with Luigi Zangales from the University of Chicago. We're discussing Italy's political and financial situation. In a few moments, we'll, talking about, we'll talk about trauma counseling in refugee camps in le- settlements in Lebanon. Stay with us. And uh, Luigi is also the host of his own podcast these days, Capital Isn't. And, uh, you know, it's uh, curious, the, the, the whole um, uh, worry about the euro here. Is that really realistic? Is that something that Italy can pull out of? And it seems like the economic consequences of that are so vast and uh, punishing to Italians that no actual politician could go through with it. Uh, You're probably right. But the reality is if you close most people in a room, they tell you that the euro does not work and they wish it didn't exist. I'm not talking about the man on the street. I'm talking about colleagues of mine, important people, uh, but they don't have the courage to admit it publicly. I think that the euro was designed in a flawed way and uh, ideally should be fixed. There is zero desire to fix it, at least uh, on the part of uh, Germany and maybe also other partners. So uh, Italy is in a very uncomfortable position because we are bearing most of the cost of this flawed design. And, uh, and we're wondering, uh, should we continue for that in eternity uh, or should we do something else? And I think that uh, you're absolutely right. An exit, especially a unilateral exit, could be devastating to the Italian economy. And, and no politician will uh, do in his right mind will do it. Uh, the problem is, what about if you are uh, with a shoulder against the wall, what uh, the other force you? I think that uh, this risk does exist. We, we cannot ignore it. And by the way, the market does not ignore it. Consider it small, but it does not ignore it. I don't think that uh, any any politician willingly will do that cold turkey. Uh, then, so that so that gives us another reason to not be too worried about even Eurosceptic uh, economy ministers. I think we should not be worried about those particular uh, Eurosceptics. I think we should be worried about the future of the Eurozone. Uh, there was a, a famous uh, economist commentator, Herbert Stein, who used to say that whatever can, can, is not sustainable eventually will not be sustained. And, uh, and I think is, is a truism, uh, but it's very important to remind listeners about this. In, uh, either the euro is fixed somehow or eventually is going to collapse. Now, we don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know by whom, uh, but will create a lot of uh, cost along the way. 
I wanted to say something about the former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi. His party took a beating in the polls. If there's a snap election or another election, should he get out of the way and let somebody else in there that could maybe change the equation for the next election? Uh, I don't know who says lead, follow, or get out of the way. I think he proved that he couldn't lead. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a good follower, so maybe it's time for him to get out of the way. And I think he's very responsible, so not so much for the defeat, but of the fact that after the election, he could have easily formed a majority with a five-star movement, would have been a progressive majority, would have been a majority where the novelty of the five-star was somehow combined with the tradition and the experience of the PD. He refused to do that. And so a lot of this uh, shenanigans that are taking place now is the result of his uh, uh, basically choice of uh, like small kids that lose the game, pick up the ball and say, we don't play anymore. Is there any way for the next government to start digging Italy out of the hole. Is there a prescription for this that you would advise? Because, I mean, right now it looks like the the coalition that's coming in doesn't really have a solid prescription. They're going to cut taxes and raise spending. That that seems like it's not going to get it there. Uh, Certainly, uh, just those two measures will not uh, solve the problem, Uh, even if I think that uh, trying to find some form of universal basic income, some sort of welfare for uh, the unemployed people in Italy is a good idea. Italy is the only country with Greece not to have a generalized form of of welfare. So I think that uh, we need to go in that direction to make it, at least in my view, uh, not unconditional, but uh, conditional on looking for a job. And so that would give more incentives for people actually to look for a job. Um, You should also... Uh, reduce uh, taxes on uh, on labor. Uh, Italy is heavily taxed on labor. is almost like a, a fiscal paradise from a point of view of uh, taxation on capital. So there is a way to combine. Not that this government necessarily would do, but that's a way to do it. Um, I think is is very important to make the economy more transparent and efficiency. I one of my hope is the the five star movement has always been. Uh, very much in favor of uh, transparency and efficiency. So uh, one of the first measures that I would like them to take, I don't think would take, is to say you need to know who is the ultimate ownership of every company operating in Italy. That will reduce tax evasion, reduce crime, reduce the mafia, reduce a lot of negative things, and will give more transparency to the economy. Uh, It's a very simple measure at zero cost. Uh, They could do it. Will they? I'm not so sure. Luigi Zangales is professor of entrepreneurship and finance at the University of Chicago. He's also the host of a new podcast, Capital Isn't. And people were floating your name out there for finance minister. What happened there? Uh, I don't know who floated the name. I am a very unlikely candidate, <laughs> so I'm very happy to stay here in Chicago. Well, you could you could you could get your transparency going. You could have somebody do that. <laughs> yeah, if they were to uh, listen to me, then uh, it could be t- tempting. But uh, I don't think anybody will listen to me. Nice talking with you, Luigi Zangalas. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about trauma counseling in refugee settlements in Lebanon. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to talk about doing trauma work on the Syria-Lebanon border. Tamara Sharifov is a licensed social worker, and she specializes in post-traumatic stress disorder. And she was with the Syrian-American Medical Society, known as SAMS, and doing some uh, volunteer work on the border in April of 2018. Great to meet you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Tell us a little about yourself and how you got involved in post-traumatic stress work and volunteering like this. What made that happen? Wow, what a substantive question. Well, I think when I look back at the history of my family, it would make perfect sense that this is a trajectory um, my life has gone in. Uh, the desire to work with trauma, psychological trauma, um, and the desire really to understand war and conflict. Your family came from Azerbaijan originally? Yeah, my family immigrated on official refugee status from uh, Azerbaijan during the fall or collapse of the Soviet Union, right when it was beginning. Wow. So um, how did that inform how you think about yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, my family came here two months before I was born, and they also immigrated all the way through Europe when they got here. And so I've seen what immigration and fleeing has done to families, what it can do to families. And so it sits very deeply within my blood. And when I got there to witness what I saw and to understand that a refugee crisis is not just when war occurs. It's not just when the bombs drop. It goes far beyond what we see on the news. People are stuck on borders. They can't work in the countries that they're in. There are tons of walls that are being built around the world. And so for me to understand that my family was able to get into this country, luckily, for me shows the privilege that I have and for me also shows the true tragedy that's occurring within our world today. This is the largest humanitarian crisis occurring in real time in modern history since World War II. The scope of it is really hard to digest just in Lebanon, a country that is so small and they've taken in like the equivalent of 20, 25 percent of their population is refugees now. And they haven't been actually documenting, I think, since 2015. So the number is actually much larger than is officially documented, as you can imagine. So it's about a fourth or a third of the population. And simply where we were, which is Bekaa Valley, right on the border of Syria and Lebanon, there's settlement after settlement after settlement. There's refugees everywhere. And the magnitude of it and seeing it is beyond words for a country that's the size of Connecticut. What does that look like, settlement after settlement after settlement? Well, imagine driving down Chicago and imagine almost on every single block you could see one refugee settlement, which isn't an official refugee camp because Lebanon will not create official refugee camps. They're just settlements. The Lebanese government will not create official refugee camps like Jordan has, like Turkey has, like Greece has. Um, so it looks a little different. It's not at the scale. There's a lot less provided to them. Some are made out of tin. Some of the buildings are made out of tin, not even buildings or tents, or they're made out of plastic cloth. And you're just driving and there's one. And then you go about a block and there's another and then a block. Um, of course, they're not blocks, but that's how close they are to each other. We were working in one refugee settlement and you would go to the back of the refugee settlement and there's another settlement right behind it, separate from it. And that's how close they are together all over that valley. Well, tell us about the people you met there. Who did you bump into here and end up working with? Yeah, so, well, we were working in what they would call widows' camps. So they were mostly women and children. The men have either been killed in the war, they've been missing, or they've been imprisoned. So what I saw was women, you know, being the breadwinners 
for their families. However, women that also really technically aren't allowed to work because the Lebanese government will not recognize them or provide them with work visas. And on top of that, they're having to pay rent and they're having to raise their children. So it was a very difficult situation that we witnessed. Uh, there were many, many, many children running around, and their energy was very vibrant. In one camp, I noticed in another camp, we noticed that the volunteers in another camp, the kids were much more withdrawn. And in another camp, the one where they were more vibrant, you noticed that they were more wanting to interact with us, but they had such... Um, intense emotional dysregulation or what we would call affect dysregulation. So they would go very quickly from laughing with you, communicating with you. And then if there's an accidental bump from another child, they're quickly enraged. And so you're seeing the dysregulation within their body, which is coming from the trauma they've experienced so young on top of the continuation of living in such dire circumstances. They're not able to regulate their nervous system the way we would hope me and you can. And that's just one of the many things that we witnessed there. I'm talking with Tamara Sharifov. She's a licensed social worker specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder, and she was in the Syria-Lebanon border area in April of 2018, helping out and volunteering with the Syrian American Medical Society. How did you decide who to work with when you were there? The Syrian American Medical Society, I imagine they brought you to some people and thought these are the good people to work with. (laughs) So there's a ground team that works in Lebanon. So just to understand that, uh, the Syrian American Medical Society, which is a non-governmental, non-political organization, they're not only working in Lebanon. They're also working in Jordan and Turkey, also in Greece, as well as in Bangladesh with the Rohingya population within that crisis. And there are ground teams that work simultaneously, not only with their office here in Washington, And they're planning everything on the ground there. So when we arrived, everything was already created for us. Uh, There was a plan. There was a schedule. They had already decided which settlements that we were going into. I don't know the information on how that was decided. I just know uh, that's where we ended up every day. And the people they had you work with, Mm -hmm. had they had trauma counseling before this? So this is very difficult. This was the first time that SAMS had any type of mental health alongside their medical missions because they specialize in global humanitarian medical missions. Um, So this was an experiment. And no, they've never had a mental health come in with a medical mission. They do have one known mental health facility, which is run by SAMS in Bacaw Valley. Actually, they have three in the entire valley itself, but I don't know of any other mental health services that were provided. And as you can imagine, the need is so dire. And so when we were there, we weren't providing what you would think of as traditional therapy here in the West. You know, I wasn't sitting with a client and asking them about their past or talking to them about things like that. It was more of a triage system. So we had doctors that were working and they created a makeshift medical clinic within the camp. And anytime they would hear a story such as, you know, my child is experiencing continence and this all started when the bomb fell on our house or my child has been mute since we escaped. Bombs were falling on our village or on our neighborhood, um, and she hasn't spoken since we got here. And so they would bring them to us and ask us these questions. And so it was more about psychoeducation and referring them to this clinic. Because as you can imagine, these clinics just don't have the resources to go and do outreach. And so that was part of our work. And the other part of my job was also being a psychological support to the volunteers. So that was a huge role that I played within the camps themselves. And then the other thing I did was I actually was training Sam's mental health staff on the ground in suicidality and working with individuals who think about suicide chronically and who engage in self-harm chronically. 
So there was a magnitude of stuff going on. There were a lot of moving parts within my role there. Did you get the impression that suicide was a big problem in these settlements that you were seeing? So I can tell you that thinking about suicide is absolutely heightened in those circumstances. As you can imagine, self-harm was heightened. There was a boy, for example, who had slashes down both of his arms from wrist to elbow, and he was self-harming. And there was a lack of understanding of why. Um, And this is a very difficult thing to work with, is self-harm and suicidality. And so... You know, there was also a person, an individual who came into the clinic the day before I was there, and he uh, was brought in by his parents because he almost took his life with a gun because he couldn't turn his mind off. It's called ruminating, where your mind is just a tape recorder and you can't stop and he felt like he was going crazy. These are just a couple of so many stories that we saw, so many times that we heard of somebody being so depressed that they didn't want to live. The magnitude of all this with so many refugees, and they're, they're all suffering some level of trauma, I imagine. Uh, how do you grapple with how much care they're going to need? It seems like there's not any there for them now, and they need it. Yeah, I mean, the, the crisis, the magnitude of this crisis is so massive. And again, I really want to reiterate the point that it is not just about what we're seeing on the news within Syria itself. This is just the beginning of what they're going through. Now these individuals are in refugee camps or refugee settlements in so many countries. Their whole life has been torn away from them. And so the need for mental health care, the need for research on the appropriate way to be dealing with a crisis of this magnitude and the appropriate way to be providing mental health services ethically so you're not engaging in more harm is so, so important. And it's something that we can't Uh, lose sight of. I mean, what we call the children are the lost or last um, generation of Syria because there's so many children. If you think about it, the war is in its eighth year right now, seven and a half years. And so there's so many kids and all they've known is war. And so the need for mental health care is not just now. It's not just in Syria. It's not just in the neighboring countries. It's going to be for so many years to come. And we cannot lose sight of that and forget about that just because this crisis has left the news. I'm talking with Tamira Sharifov, and she is a licensed social worker specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder. She was in a refugee camp in Syria and Lebanon, uh, the border area there, in April of 2018. She was with the Syrian American Medical Society. Did Sam's come away from your trip with any conclusions about uh, mental health and what to do with it in the future? Did you get the feeling like they were thinking through how they can address this? Well, I think SAMS has definitely been thinking through this much longer than the time that I was there. I mean, SAMS has a very vibrant mental health clinic stationed in Jordan. They're really developing their mental health program in Lebanon. I don't know much about their work in Turkey, but I'm going to assume they have mental health there in Greece. So this is not something that's not at the forefront of their mind. Again, SAMS is very focused on the medical side of it. And so what SAMS is attempting to do is integrate mental health into that. And I think they're doing a wonderful job. And I also think that they're at the beginning stages of it. But I think SAMS is an amazing organization in really learning and taking step forwards in that respect. I noticed that you're a DJ in your spare time. (laughs) Sometimes at this point, yes. (laughs) Did that come into play at all? Were you able to uh, loosen people up with some music once in a while? (laughs) I got asked many times by people, by the volunteers, if I would DJ. It's interesting, the way that I got connected with SAMS or the Syrian American Medical Societies, I was actually approached to do a benefit tour for them, um, which was to raise funding for their psychosocial services. And we traveled to 10 cities with very prominent Muslim American artists here in the U.S., raised money, raised awareness, and I approached 
approached them and I told them, well, this is what I do in my day job and I want to get involved with the work you guys do. So it was really interesting the way Sam's entered my life. Um, I don't think it's by chance. This is definitely right in line with the work that I do and the trajectory I would like my career to go in. So I think it was by perfect design. So do you think you'll go back? Do you think you'd like to uh, do this again? Absolutely. Yeah, no, this is the trajectory of my life. This is just the first time of me engaging in work like this, but this is my passion. Um, If there's anything within the context of trauma, as you can imagine, trauma is everywhere, sexual assault, domestic violence, war. Um, I mean, what's happening here in Chicago, the gun violence, it's everywhere. For me specifically, given my history, given the things that have occurred in my life, this is very near and dear to my heart. Um, One thing even more that ignites it is when I was 15, my cousin was killed in the Iraq war. And so this work sits very close to my heart is the idea of war on top of my parents fleeing when there was civil unrest between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So I would go back and this is, yeah, this is my life. This is a lifestyle for me. Your cousin was in the Marines? He was. And he was in a helicopter crash? He was. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine that was uh, tough for the whole family. Right? It was tragic. Absolutely. It was, um, it's the hardest thing, I think, out of all the many things that my family has experienced, this was the toughest. Um, really to think about an individual, my cousin also, with my aunt and uncle who were able to get out when the Soviet Union was collapsing and were able to get to the United States um, fleeing civil unrest, he joins the military and then gets killed in conflict here. Mm. So it's a very interesting um, reality that my family sits in. So you're able to look at the people, the war widows that are there and see the impact. You've got a, a real-life thing to look at. Yeah. You know, I've, I've experienced the impact of war in my own ways, which have been extremely painful. I think it's very important to note that I've also been in the U.S. that does not experience war yep. in the same way that the region that I was in, that part of the world, experiences war. So I was seeing it on a completely different level. I was seeing it on, I would say, the worst level that humanity can have right now because not only is there a war occurring, but there's also an inability to get to places of safety because many countries have closed their borders. And again, that's not something that my family experienced you know, from my parents' side, but we have also experienced the tragedy of war very closely to us. Now, you happen to be in these camps in Lebanon when the U.S. struck in Syria. Mm-hmm. What kind of impression did that make when the Trump administration did this uh, action? Yeah, yeah. So it was a really interesting thing to be there when that occurred, because if you think about the trajectory of the war, seven and a half years, there have been very small slivers of time where all eyes are on Syria all at once. And it was very interesting to be there during that time. It was the morning that we were driving to the border from Beirut, which is a very short drive. And I think it was, for me, quite surreal, of course. But I think also it was a moment for me to understand what that region goes through all the time. I think for us here, it almost becomes a spectacle, whereas there, that part of the world is very vulnerable. All those countries are falling in and out of war all the time. So I got a brief snippet into what's happening there all the time. And unfortunately, life has to go on. And that's what happens. And being in Lebanon, which is housed right in between um, Syria and the body of water where um, the missiles were coming from, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, if Russia were to retaliate, it was probably going to go right over us also, which is the first missile did go over us. 
So it was, uh, it was an interesting day, yes. Do you know where the hope is for these people in Lebanon? What is their dream? Well, their dream is to go back to their homeland. That I can say. The amount of times that, you know, when saying, we'll see you again as we're leaving, and they'll say, next time, we'll meet in Syria. The amount of times we heard, they just want to go home. I think it's important to note that while we speak about this tragedy, and it's important for us to continue this conversation about what's occurring, right? So in this moment, as you and I are talking, there's unfortunately people dying. This war is still occurring, even if it's not on headline news. I also think it's very important to talk about the beauty of Syrian culture. Even in the camps, even in these dire circumstances, they were serving us tea. There was laughter. There was playfulness. The beauty of Syrian culture is something I witnessed in a magnitude I could never understand unless I spent time with them, unless I spent time in that area. And I think not losing that, the fact that they are so committed and not losing sight of who they are at their core is their hope. Tamara Sharifov is a licensed social worker specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder, and she was in Lebanon on the Syria-Lebanon border, working with the Syrian American Medical Society and helping with trauma and training. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about beautiful faces of Colombia. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Photographer Mike Bracey and author-activist Ruth Goring raise awareness about the plight of Afro-Colombian people. They have a new book out, Beautiful Faces of Colombia, Caras Lindas de Colombia, and they have a book release event Saturday at the Uri Eichen Gallery. Great to see you both. Thank hey, you, Jerome. Jerome. How are you? Very Good. Good. Um, Ruth, you've been involved with Colombia for many years. You grew up there. And tell us, most people here don't know anything about the Afro-Colombian population there. What What's it like? Well, um, many people are surprised to find out, including Colombians. Many Colombians are surprised to find out that they have the third largest population of African descendants in the Americas after Brazil and the United States. Um, and... I learned from uh, my friend Mike here, actually. Um, he was the conduit for um, my knowledge that actually the vast majority of Africans who were forcibly brought to the Americas went to um, what we call now um, Latin America rather than coming to North America. We, we thought that every were the central slave thing in the mm. universe, but mm. actually that's not true. A very small percentage were brought to North America, like around 5%. The majority were in South America, mainly Brazil. So, in, in fact, Brazil has the second largest 
African population in the world, only next to Nigeria. Oh, no kidding. So, yeah. That's amazing. And so there, the population percentage-wise in Colombia of Afro-Colombians is, is about where? Well, it's somewhat disputed. The, the um, official figures are at about 10%. Um, um, many think that it's – I mean, it depends on how you, how you count it. You know, the census is, says about 10%, but I think many people probably um, fudge – or, or just prefer not to identify themselves that way. And so it's probably closer to 20, 25% maybe. And most people, uh, what kind of circumstances do they live in? Is it uh, different than the other Colombians? Well, there's a huge you know, percentage of poverty in Colombia across all ethnicities. But um, historically, of course, because of uh, the beginnings in slavery, um, Afro-Colombians have been very marginalized, and they still are. Um, uh, but I do want to um, dispute a little bit your introduction, because we're not just about the plight of Afro-Colombians. We are about the struggle of Afro-Colombians mm-hmm. and the dignity. And the celebration, yeah. Yeah, because there's so much to admire. Um, so they so they still aren't very represented at all in government. In um, Are they in television? <laughs> well, when we were there um, in 2014, specifically visiting Afro-Colombian communities, this is something, a trip that Mike and his wife and I did together in early 2014. Um, uh, Mike talked to some of the young kids who were just watching TV all day long if they were, or as much as they were around home. They always had the TV on in some of these homes where we stayed. And um, we'll go ahead and tell them what. Well, you know. In particular, there was a there's a show here in the United States called Grey's Anatomy, and which um, which shows a diverse cast, very diverse cast. Well, in Colombia, they have something very similar to Grey's Anatomy, but there it's not a diverse cast. It's mostly fair skinned people, and so when asked how come they don't have a diverse cast, well, their answer was, well, we can't find any black actors to play doctors. And that's ludicrous because if you're an actor, you can play a fireman, you can play a policeman or whatever. So, And that wasn't, that wasn't what the kids said, but that was what an authority figure said right, some, right. Um, in, the, in the networks. But the kids said, oh, you know, and when Mike asked them if, if, he saw, if they saw themselves represented, they said, well, actually, the, um, the um, Afro-descendant people on TV are usually criminals or house servants. Right. So, so the, yeah, there's such a long way to go. But um but there are some amazing movements seeking rights and reparations and um they have they have been achieving some great things. I'm talking with Ruth Goring and Mike Bracey. Their book is Beautiful Faces of Columbia. They have a book release event Saturday at the Uri Eichen Gallery. Um, now, is there a – Mike, you've been dealing with uh, the Americas in other projects. You have an Africans within the Americas project. Right. Um, you've seen uh, the African diaspora all over the hemisphere. How does the Afro-Columbian um, – groups fit into all that? Is, is it um, the same? Is it different? Well, they just fit in, and that's just perfect. That's all a part of the puzzle. That's where I look at it. It's a, a puzzle with several pieces missing, and um, Colombia is just one of the puzzles that's, that's a, a, one of the pieces that's going to fit in the puzzle. Um, I think it's extremely important. Identity is extremely important, and um, just to know that there are people who look just like you and to go through the same things 
I think that's just award winning. Um, and Colombia is a it's a it's a place there. The music, the food, everything is just like what I grew up with here in the United States. You know, just a different flavor, maybe a little bit more spicier, but <laughs> black eyed peas or black eyed peas, you know, wherever you go. So, yeah, I felt I felt at home in Colombia with, you know, looking at my cousins and my aunts and my uncles. And so when you look at the struggle that the African diaspora goes through, it, how do you rate the stages or how it feel? Well, I think here in the United States, we are very advanced when it comes to civil rights issues. And and that goes back to, I think, um, the, the philosophy of the colonizers. You know, uh, the British were very pointed toward education. I mean, once we got the opportunity to be educated, they were like, yeah, let's educate. Well, in other countries that weren't, colonized, well, colonized by different European factions, they were not on educate. You want to keep people not educated because if you educate people, you give them power. And and um, that's extremely important to know who you are. And that's a part of the power. And so I think Colombia, Brazil, they're a little behind. Well, they're a lot behind the United States. They look at the United States as a role model. Um, what we went through in the 50s and 60s with the King and Malcolm X marches and so on and so on. That's what they look, they modeled themselves after that, I think. So, Did you see any kind of sign of organization uh, that was making that change? Oh, no doubt. A lot of the people that we stayed with, and Ruth, you could probably talk a little bit more about this, um, they were a part of organizations that are fighting for rights. So, Ruth? Yeah, there's... Um the uh, Af- Afrodes, the um, association, uh, the National Association of um, Displaced Afro-Colombians, um, who's, who's one of whose leaders has been here numerous times, um, Luz Marina Becerra, here in Chicago and, and here at, uh, um, on the program. Um, they are working mostly in cities where Afro-Colombians from rural areas have been displaced in the last 20 years especially. And... Um, it's it's the the populations are concentrated in the cities and um, people are really struggling, um, but they come from rural places where they they um, lived kind of under the radar for a long time, like in in Choco, especially in Cauca, in um, some in Tuaco, in Nariño, in the south. Um, and these are, and yeah, that's part yeah. of Choco, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is uh, places where there are a lot of resources that are just being um, coveted now by multinational corporations, uh, whether they're based in Colombia or elsewhere. And so that's at the basis of this displacement, although that, you know, it hooks in with the civil conflict in Colombia that's political. So economic and political in Colombia, you you know, you can't really separate them. But um, it's... It, so there, so the so these organizations are trying to pick up this this um, this these complex uh, issues of displacement and um, um, are, are local the, control and are the peace know. accords making things any better for Afro Colombians? You would think if you had peace breaking out, that would be uh, a good thing. Many, many of the Afro-Colombians and, and other social leaders of, of other groups that I know um, were very positive toward the peace accord. And, um, but um, this past year, 
after the peace accord was, sign- was signed between the Colombian government and the left-wing FARC. Um, we, we all rejoiced, but um, this last year between 120 and 150 um, human rights defenders in local communities have been assassinated. That was in 2017, and, and it's continuing in this year. And um, the reason seems to be this is more than has happened at any t- in any in any year uh, during the war, even. Um, so the reason seems to be that people are um, reacting, and the armed groups are reacting to the peace accord, and paramilitary groups um, that have reorganized since their supposed um, demobilization um, are, and and some dissident FARC uh, groups are battling for control, and um, the community organizers and the union leaders and the um, uh, other human rights defenders are in the way of their just taking over the um, the uh, drug trafficking in different areas and other um, resource um, possibilities you- like like uh, gold mining. Mm-hmm. So in essence, Afro-Colombian communities were in the way during the war and they're in the way after the war? They, they, they get the displaced both times? I don't think we can still say it's after the war. Mm-hmm. You know, the the particular part of the war that was between um, the government and the FARC is over, but there's so many other dimensions that's, to Colombia's conflict. That's on paper. That's on paper. But the reality, no, it's still going on, I'm sure. Right. Although it's not, it's not mainly with the FARC mm-hmm. because most right. of them have demobilized. Mm-hmm. But um, the FARC didn't endear themselves to the Colombian people, I have to say. Um, and uh, so... Many times they are individual um, former fighters who have been demobilized are finding that they're being rejected and um, attacked as they try to uh, settle back into civilian life. So it's, it's very multidimensional and it's it, – Colombia is not done. I'm talking with Ruth Goring and Mike Bracey. Their book is Beautiful Faces of Columbia. They have a book release event Saturday at the Uri Eichen Gallery. Uh, tell us a bit about the book itself. I know it took you a while to get it together and get a book out uh, from, from the trip, but you, you took beautiful black and white pictures and uh, gorgeous-looking people, and it, it's just a, a great-looking thing. Well, we're just so thrilled to put our venture between two covers and yeah, it, it was um, it took a minute to do this, but we're just so thrilled with it. When I look at the book, I don't even see myself. I mean, I see myself in it, but not being um, a constructor of it. I mean, I'm just so absorbed in the people, the people's lives and, and the, beautiful, the beauty of the people and just reading about the history. And, and it's like, wow, I, I just... I, I see myself in, in the eyes of the youth, and I'm wanting and praying that I will be able to walk in the path of the, of the, of the senior citizens uh, that we experience with because they're just, it's just so, it's, it, it truly matches the title, Beautiful Faces of Columbia. That's why I feel about it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> How about you, Ruth? I think that one of the bonds that Mike and I have is that <clears> – <throat> We both are basically in love with light, <clears throat> light on black faces, and um, it is. Yeah, I totally agree, and that and that's that's extremely important in photography, lighting. I mean, that's what photography is all about, and so 
these beautiful faces just absorb the light. And it's just, oh, you can just see the, the, their, their essence, really. Who are the people you look at and miss and want to say hi to again? Oh, man, are you kidding me? They're just everywhere we went. Um, we were in this small village in Pachorita, which is outside of Pacorita. Pacorita. Yeah, excuse my Spanish. <laughs> which is, I don't know how many minutes or hours outside of Quito. But we, we went to this um, daycare. And these kids, I mean, all of them were, were sharing the same cold. They were all coughing. <laughs> but these kids, they were just like, oh, man, they were just like a magnet, you know. And I just, there was a big um, um, basket of, or pool, whatever, of plastic balls. And I just jumped in there with them. And they were, it was just real, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. They were all snotty nose and everything. <laughs> but I miss, I think I miss the kids the most. I mean, every place we went, we ran into children. They were just so sweet and just so loving. I think that um, another person— And the dogs. So. <laughs> <laughs> but another person you would say that, that you'd love to see again is, is uh, Don Francisco. This is oh, the, yeah. eldest, the eldest man in uh, Palenque de San Basilio, which is the um, in South America the first um, free— um, community of former slaves. Yeah. Well, I want to invite everybody to your book release event at the Uri Eichen Gallery. It's on uh, South Halstead Street. Right. 2101 South Halstead. It's on Saturday and it's at uh, 630, starts at 630 and beautiful faces of Columbia and uh, it sounds like a lovely event. You'll have uh, your friend from Columbia there. We'll talk, have a talk so people will get to learn more. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for joining us, Ruth Goring and Mike Bracey, Beautiful Faces of Columbia, Saturday, 6.30 at the Uri Eichen Gallery, 2101 South Halstead. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll hear a bit about Yemen and talk with some physicians who have just been there. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.